Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Jeffrey Moore, author of numerous books, including the landmark technology industry standard, go-to-market book, Crossing the Chasm, also founder of the Chasm Group, and venture partner at Wildcat Venture Partners. Today, we'll be covering four main areas with Jeff. First, the principles of crossing the chasm as they apply in 2021 and beyond. Second, how legacy technology vendors can continue to survive and thrive in the evolving cloud industry. Third, the concept of zone management and the associated metrics to measure each zone. And fourth, Jeffrey's latest book, The Infinite Staircase, which is a real pivot for this technology industry thought leader. Jeff, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Ray, we, we, as you know, we've been hanging out together for a long time, but this goes back. The first part of my career, it's going to show up at the end. I was an English professor and I wrote a dissertation I worked at. It was in the area of Renaissance literature, the intersection of philosophy and literature, and a lot of fun with that. But we came back to California in 1976. I got involved with the um, tech industry and I kind of stayed there ever since. And uh, the work I did with Regis McKenna allowed me to write a book called Crossing the Chasm, which was, you know, my opportunity to sort of take the technology adoption lifecycle and apply it to high tech in a way that was a little bit novel. That caught on. It allowed me to start my own consulting firm. As you mentioned, we, we formed the Chasm Group and a couple of other spinoff consulting firms, bunch of books in between. And then I would say the bookend for the business books, Crossing the Chasm is how does a startup go to market? And then zone to win is how does a legacy established enterprise catch the next wave? Same journey in different contexts. And as you said, I'm kind of reverting back to my original type with this last book and getting back to the intersection of philosophy and in my life's work. I was at an Eagles concert last Friday night, and the first song they played, Jeff, was Hotel California. And it was a song that many would claim is the most famous, if not the best Eagles song. And it kicked off an evening that was really a multi-decade long musical journey for me. So I, I was thinking about our discussion today. I thought about, do I start with the infinite staircase or do I start with that legacy groundbreaking book, Crossing the Chasm? And I have to start with Crossing the Chasm, if that's okay with you. That's fine. Look, I'm delighted. And I think the question is, it's a fair question, which is, look, that book was written in 1990. I mean, that was 31 years ago. It's been updated twice because it had to have all new examples, but the frameworks have never changed. So the real question is, well, so wait a minute, why is that still relevant now? I mean, I mean, it's a very, very different landscape, as you and I both know. So what, what we learned about that is, first of all, it doesn't apply to everything. It is a B2B oriented book, much more than a B2C oriented book. B2C, the dynamics of viral marketing and B2C are very, very different. We can kind of shoehorn them into crossing the chasm, but it's not what it's for. What it's for is B2B markets where you have considered decision makers, there's budgeting, there's reviews. I mean, you have to go through a sales cycle, it's an enterprise sales cycle. Even with small businesses, a review, although it's much lighter. And the key idea behind it is pragmatic people 
want to wait and see if the new disruptive innovation is really going to be good for them. So they don't like to be first. There's always a group that does like to be first. That was the early adopters. But then how do you cross the chasm? How do you get that pragmatic kind of, you go first, I don't want to go first person to get in. And that was all about, as you well know, finding a beachhead market that would you know, lean in because they were really needed help. And so that was the core of the strategy. And of course, you guys were implementing it yourselves back at Netscape back in the day. Jeff, we have a lot of, I would say, earlier career and founders of the B2B SaaS industry that may not remember or maybe haven't even read Crossing the Chasm, God forbid. But you had this technology lifecycle adoption curve that had five phases, innovators, early adopters, then you cross the chasm to the early majority, late majority, and then laggards. And each of those phases, you had different buyer types. Does that still hold true today? Even when we have digital natives who are buyers, do you still see the different buyer types in each one of those phases of technology lifecycle adoption curve? Yes. And furthermore, those personas show up not just in high tech. If you introduce any disruptive innovation into any social system, that pattern will emerge. If the innovators, that first group are the ones who get excited about the technology itself, they want to know how it works. And that second group we called the early adopters, we called them the visionaries. They were the ones who say, I'm going to bet early on this and I'm either going to make it or break it, but either way, I'm I'm going to go first. And, and, and that's great. And, and, and they lean in and they believe what you believe. And it's great. The chasm crossing thing is people on the other side of the chasm are not believers. And so you have to find a way to relate to them. And what we discovered, as you well know, is, look, that they care about the problems they have. And specifically, they'll give you the time of day if you can help them address a problem they can't solve with conventional means. And they're under huge pressure to solve. So the whole key of crossing the chasm was find a use case that's just a bear. It's in a marginal market. Nobody's giving these people any love. They really need help. And by the way, it's a good fit for your technology. I mean, it's something you can really nail. And then just build what we call the whole product, you know, the whole thing. It's a solution marketing. And so those people need what you have. And you focus, even though you're going to be a global company that's going to serve hundreds of markets and you're going to be intergalactic domineers. You know, in that moment in time, you specialize in one use case in one vertical market until you get the fire started. And you once you get pragmatic people doing it, then they can be references for other pragmatists. Yeah, I have a question because in the first couple of phases of innovators and early adopters, you mentioned that innovators are comprised of technology enthusiasts. And early adopters are comprised mostly of visionaries who can actually see how the technology impacts a business process and makes them more competitive or gives them a strategic advantage. How do you as a B2B marketer or a B2B salesperson, because sales now is doing a lot of demand generation, how do you identify if that buyer you're talking to is an enthusiast or visionary, Jeff? It's a great question. First of all, those both of those people want to hear about you. So first of all, they, they want to hear about your technology. They want to hear about your company. They want to hear about what's different. And so that's that's number one. Then number two is halfway into the conversation with, it's the visionary, by the way, you care about the most because they're the ones who are going to have the money to spend with you. They have the charisma to sponsor a, a deal that frankly, nobody else wants them to do. So the way you know that you're with a visionary is when they kind of take over the conversation. And they start telling you what they're going to do. And can you do this? And can you do that? Whereas a pragmatist will listen very politely and want a demo. And they'll, you know, and they'll say, we should stay in touch. But they've given you a clear message. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. You know, what's interesting is I, for now 25 plus years, been applying your concept. One of the things that I always had my sales and marketing teams do was if you could find, if you're in the 
early majority and you've got a pragmatist, try to find a visionary who he or she can partner with because they will be your advocate inside the organization and vice versa. If you have a visionary, it's always great to team them with a pragmatist that gets the deal done internally. Does that make sense when you try to combine the two? It can. It's not what I've done, So, but, but it's kind of interesting ideas. I'm sort of listening to you say it. What I'd said before was important. Visionaries don't ask for references. In fact, visionaries don't want references because visionaries want to be first. And pragmatists care tons about references. Where is this in production? Where can I do this? Now, when you talk about where I think your pairing is particularly interesting is if you're going to actually implement inside a company and actually have it stick, you know, inside that company, there's a life cycle. Even if you sold the visionary, the visionary got a bunch of colleagues that are pragmatists and even some conservatives. And so getting that pairing together would help you get the adoption going once you'd actually post-sales, kind of in more of a customer success motion maybe than an early first sale basis. Okay, Jeff, I'd like to jump over the chasm and talk about that early majority. And I believe that's where the bowling alley strategy really kicks off, correct? That's correct. The bowling alley strategy, the problem when, when we kept on advocating for that first use case and that laser focus on that use case, and people were going, but the market's too small. The market's too small. You know, we, we've, we've told our venture capitalists we're going to, you know, be a gazillion dollar company. And so the first thing we had to do was say, well, look, it's not just one market. It's a bowling alley. And what the bowling alley meant was, look, if you knock over the first pin, if you really nail that first use case, now that gives you into it, you can go into adjacencies. And the two kinds of adjacencies were the same use case in a related industry or a related use case in the same industry. But in both cases, you're working with a word of mouth community that trust each other. The whole key to getting pragmatists is other pragmatists sell them. You don't. In other words, they, they want to talk to their peers, and if their peers give them good feedback, then they're going to do it. And if they don't, they won't. And you can talk all day long, but that's not who they want to, want to hear from. They want to hear from their peers. Let me ask you a question about the bowling alley, because as I mentioned, when we were talking a little bit before the show, I had a huge debate on the bowling alley strategy with one of our industry's true pioneers, Mark Andreessen, the founder of Netscape, and of course, Andreessen Hurwitz. And here's my question about the bowling alley. Does that head pin have to be industry specific or can you look at a horizontal process that maybe needs to be helped across multiple industries? Well, it it can be a horizontal process across multiple industries, but for that first focal point, you care about two things. You want to build the whole product that you could build maybe for multiple use cases across, or at least the same use case across multiple industries. But you also need a word of mouth community that buys into you. And the way you get that buy-in is you win three, four, five, six customers in the same industry with the same use case. And that's where they start saying, oh my gosh, these guys are the new answer. And once that word of mouth starts, it can spread. But if you get four or five customers in different industries, they don't talk to each other. And so you can't get that word of mouth thing going. Makes sense. And I know you did some work early on with Salesforce. Did they use the bowling alley strategy when they were trying to basically do Salesforce automation? They sure did. Basically, then I don't know that they did it as consciously because Mark, by the way, I'm still working with Salesforce. I, I love Benny a ton. But the point is what de facto they did, because what they did is they sold to mid-sized sales companies in tech, essentially district sales managers in tech. And district sales managers in tech interview for each other's jobs and they talk to each other and they all hated Siebel, you know, as, as a system. It was good for the execs, but it wasn't good for them. And so, yeah, there was a great word of mouth and it would largely happen on the start of this peninsula. That, and then their big visionary, their first big visionary deal outside of that was Merrill Lynch. When Merrill Lynch did it, it was like when the CIA went with Amazon Web Services, it was like, 
whoa, okay, so that got people's attention, you know, and got them more visibility. I don't know if this is folklore or truth, but one of the big things we heard back in 2002, 2003 was Merrill Lynch wanted to take the software and deploy it behind their firewall in the data center. And Mark said, no, we are a SaaS company and we are going to host it for you with all the right security. Totally true. And absolutely. I mean, remember the first sort of campaign for Salesforce was something called no software. And by the way, that was the prescient idea, because what we knew, but we never really admitted, is as soon as you install software on-premise, it starts to rot, because basically no two implementations can be possibly be the same. And the longer they're in sight, the more compromised they become. And so you, you end up having this sort of decay curve around, and people get very disillusioned with enterprise software because of that. Well, let's move on from... We've conquered the bowling alley strategy, and now we have multiple industries and multiple companies adopting our product. And I believe the next phase you talk about is inside the tornado, which sounds kind of scary, but it's actually a good thing, right, Jeff? Yes, it is. So what happens is word of mouth marketing works a little bit like junior high dances, meaning, you know, they, the people are on the sidelines, on the sidelines, but then if everybody starts to dance, then everybody rushes onto the floor. And so the tornado, by the way, the reason we use the tornado metaphor was just there's a, all of a sudden, because everybody says, okay, this is the new thing. So they all create budget within one or two years of each other. Prior to the tornado, by the way, nobody has budget for your product. You have to create the budget. You have to move the budget. But in the tornado, it's like, no, 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 we're all going into the cloud. No, 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 we're all going to do mobile. No, 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 we're all, it's all going to be mobile. And all of a sudden, there's this massive influx of demand. Then it becomes incredibly important to win market share during the tornado because everybody's got money to spend. And if you don't win those customers, your competitor does. This, we're not going to talk about this book, but if you win this phase of technology lifecycle adoption inside a tornado, you really can become the gorilla of that market and business really starts coming to you versus your competition, right? Absolutely true. But the way ecosystems work, look, ecosystems are like, they're like antelope coming to a watering hole. They want to go where the water is. So, so whoever's got the biggest install base and all of a sudden the, the partners say, well, let's start there. Well, if more ecosystem partners are working on your product, it's a better solution. There's more people to help. There's more variations on it. People build extra on-ramp. All the flaws that you have, they figure out ways around them because that's what they're making money doing. And so the power of a company in the tornado is actually a function of their ecosystem much more than themselves. And once the ecosystem's in place, it lasts for a very, very long time. I know Insider Tornado is supposed to be relevant to a company, but I think about our industry, the B2B SaaS or B2B cloud industry. It feels right now our industry is inside the tornado phase. Would you agree with that? Yeah. In fact, Inside the Tornado is not really supposed to apply to a company. It is supposed to apply to a technology. So basically, it's, it's that period in the technology adoption lifecycle where you're at the steepest part of the S-curve and everybody's adopting in a very, very short order. And what they want is something that works. So they want to say, well, who's the leader? And then, and then who do I work with? And then what use case should I start with? And they're just trying to get on board. And so first of all, making sure you can ship product during that time and you have sales coverage during that time. You know, this, that's what Cisco did so well. It's what Intel did so well. It's what Microsoft did so well. It's what Sun did so well. They were in the right place at the right time, and they fought like crazy to build their market share. That's a really good clarification that it's really more about a market segment's adoption curve, not a company. Thank you for that clarification. So the next thing you've talked about is Main Street. And this is you know kind of when I would think a lot of the the late majority starts adopting. How do you change your marketing and sales strategy once you hit Main Street? And how do you know you're in Main Street? Well, what happens on Main Street is 
you kind of work through the tornado and now it's like, well, yeah, I mean, cloud computing, sure, we're all we're all doing some version of hybrid cloud, whatever it is. But by the way, the category is going to last for decades, but it's no longer in hyper growth. The category is now in good growth. It's good growth. It's interesting. The, 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 this is where SaaS became so important. Prior to SaaS, the conservative Main Street customer base had no cloud. Nobody listened to them. Nobody cared about them. They just kind of got what they got and, and the heck with them. Because SaaS depends so much on recurring revenue. And churn is such a huge problem for any SaaS business model. Conservatives now have a lot of power because just if they just unsubscribe or if they just don't adopt, the wonderful thing about SaaS is you can now land and expand, but you can also use customer success to build usage. And because we can see whether they're using or not, because you, you, we can see with the, the logs, we can interact. All of that was not the case during the 90s when we just dropped off the software and drove out of town. Here's what I'm thinking. You know, it's kind of a new topic, but we see so many companies that have really achieved amazing things in the technology industry over the last 20 years. But when I look back to 20 years ago, 52% of Fortune 500 companies no longer exist. And then I think about the no software theme of Salesforce, and that really was taken on Siebel. And of course, we know Siebel doesn't exist anymore, even though there's some remnants, remnants within Oracle. Do you think some of today's high flyers in the B2B SaaS and cloud industry Face the same challenges five, 10 years down the road, Jeff? Oh, you bet. So, so what happens is when you have a lot of success and, and you go public and now you have investors and you're worried about your know, earnings calls and stock prices and whatever. And then, by the way, there's a whole bunch of new competitors coming into the market and they have point products and they can be much more agile than you can. There's a tendency at some point to become more internally focused. Well, you were at GE, focus on operational excellence, kind of build within the established category. And that does hold the fort for a surprisingly long time. But as soon as you become inwardly focused, you're vulnerable. So the, the way you have to, if you're going to stay in the game, you have to continually go out and say, what's the unsolved customer problems now? How do I put myself close, more in service to the customer for this next generation of stuff, as opposed to trying to suck as much profit as you can out of the current generation? You know, that's a really hard thing because sometimes it even include cannibalizing your own business. And I think of Netflix. I mean, when Netflix came out with, hey, streaming and we're going to kill the DVD business, I'm like, wow, that's a bold move. But it's what made them the leader. Is that kind of what you're talking about, Jeff? Yeah. And by the way, Reid Hasey should get a ton of credit for that because it was an amazing thing to do. I think what you can do is you can try to modernize a business as opposed to necessarily completely cannibalize it. But you are definitely going to take down your profit margins for sure. And secondly, you will, you will can do some cannibalizing. Hopefully, one of the nice things about the SaaS model in particular is it does lend itself to land and expand. And so you can say, well, look, we're going to continually add new uh, value creating properties at the margins of our product. And so we can continue to go forward. And that's where you talk about the whole product. You really need to extend that product and what organizations and processes it can impact. And if not mistaken, that's kind of part of your, another one of your books, which is in the zone to win, right? Yeah. And the performance zones. Can you tell us a little bit about those four performance zones and how they correlate to kind of the stage of the market you're in? Yeah, this is important. So in, in a large public company, we have we have these four zones. And the idea behind the zones is, each zone governs a set of opportunities which is unique to that zone and can be managed very effectively using the model of that zone. But if you try to manage using the model or metrics of the other three zones, 
you're going to get into trouble. So the performance zone is the classic, you know, mainstream market. We've got predictable sales forecasting. We've got product lines. We're doing sustaining innovation. We have inertial momentum and we have a strong install base. It's all that kind of good stuff. In that zone, you measure it the way you measure your earnings call. You know, what's your revenue? What, what's your growth? What's your margins? You know, what's your market share? All the stuff you learn at business school. The second zone we call the productivity zone. It's actually all the cost centers that support the performance zone. And that's a super process-oriented zone. So everything you do in the productivity zone is about, it's like Six Sigma, right? It's a, it's a process ratio. What's your book to bill? You know, what's your yield? What's your defects per million? What, what's your NPS score? What's your monthly active users? Whatever it is, you're measuring against a process. And process people don't win battles in the performance zone. And performance zone people don't pay enough attention to process to do well in the productivity zone. So those are very different cultures. Then the third zone we call the incubation zone. So that's much more like startup land. And that thing's got to be managed with the venture capital mindset, which is not, not the financial mindset. The venture capital, fund them to the next milestone, hold them accountable for product market fit, minimum viable product, crossing the chasm, but it's all about power. It's not about performance. In other words, the businesses in the incubation zone don't have enough mass yet to worry about their absolute numbers because they're still very tiny. But what you really care about is, are they gaining power in, in the marketplace by winning real customers, by beating real competitors, and essentially building an ecosystem that's rallying around themselves? So it's all about how powerful they are. And venture capitalists always focus on power before performance. And so they're looking for metrics that, that signal power, not just, you know, what was your you know, profit ratio, et cetera. And then the fourth zone, which is which hopefully you don't use very often, is the transformation zone. And your, your, your example of Netflix would be an example of that, where you literally are going to do open heart surgery on your business and potentially put businesses at risk potentially put your stock price at risk, you know, put some of your employees out of joint, your customers may get mad at you, but it's because the world has changed. I would say every legacy on-prem application software vendor is either has gone through this or has to go through this to get to SaaS. That'd be a classic example when you would use the transformation zone. Let's use an example and we'll use Microsoft, right? Because they crushed my company in the late nineties. And you saw that they went from their operating system orientation. They tried a lot of different things, including mobile OS, et cetera. But then the cloud and Azure really seemed to recatapult them. Can you have different zones for different products in the same company? Because that's what Microsoft did. Well, yeah, no, in fact, the zones are designed for different products. So, for example, when they were doing Azure and putting Azure in the transformation zone, and by the way, what that meant was they had a back office software business, by the way, which was very lucrative. It was what Satya was running. But cloud was an existential threat to back office software, right? On-prem software. So they actually converted their back office software customers to cloud using their enterprise license agreement as sort of the vehicle for doing that. But the thing that you got to realize is when I had you on the old enterprise license agreement with back office software, the profit margins were just incredibly lucrative. When you shifted, I shifted you to the cloud, not the net margins, the gross margins were negative. So basically, if I, with an enterprise license agreement, that's a lot of negative gross margins, which became even worse net margins. It was counterintuitive. If you're a performance zone executive, you go, you can't do that. But in fact, they did. And Balmer doesn't get any credit for this, but Balmer backed Satya. He did. Satya had the right personality, and Satya, I think, is clearly Microsoft is a much, much different and frankly better company under Satya than it was before. But I just think, you know, you got to give Balmer some credit with this thing too. Totally agree. Let's go to a little bit smaller company, kind of a, a 20 to $50 million B2B SaaS company. And 
they've done a really nice job. They're still growing 50, 80%. And let's say their core target market is the mid market. And then they're like, well, to get to 100 million, we got to go to enterprise. And what I see is the overall metrics really change as far as customer acquisition, efficacy, CAC payback period, because enterprise is very different. So even in that example, when you go to new markets, do you kind of label those as a different zone and unique metrics for each one of those target markets? Well, now we're getting back to how do the zones fit to the technology adoption lifecycle, or even just your own internal adoption lifecycle. So when you're starting into a new, you're going, let's say going from mid-market to upstream to the enterprise, again, power precedes performance. So how, as a $50 million company, are you going to be powerful competing against billion-dollar incumbents in the enterprise? You better be very, very, very focused. And you better have stuff. You better be highly differentiated. And you better stay very close to your power zone. Because as soon as you venture out, you're going to get cream. And so the metrics that matter in that situation aren't just the absolute numerical metrics. It really is. It's a little bit like winning a primary. You know, if you can win the New Hampshire primary, then maybe you can go to the Florida primary or the the Iowa caucus or whatever. But when you're competing in in the New Hampshire primary, votes in Vermont do not count. And you have to remember that principle when you're when you're a $50 million company going up against the behemoths. It's funny, whenever I've went up market or to a new region, I always said, let's get five lighthouse accounts. And I think that's what Salesforce did when they wanted to go to enterprise. They got Merrill Lynch and that was a lighthouse account. And then they knocked off the next two or three financial service organizations, correct? That's right. And again, if if your lighthouse account is in financial services, then do try to land two, three, and four, because then all of a sudden it's like, well, Merrill's using, by the way, JP Morgan, I think JP Morgan is Wells Fargo. Oh my goodness. Oh, they must be in banking. And for the customer's point of view, particularly the pragmatic customer, that is so reassuring. Well, these guys must understand my business. The fear that most customers have about software vendors is that they're so caught up in their own software, they're never going to understand me at all. And they're not going to really care about me. And so, but but if you say, no, I've got four or five or six or seven customers in your bailiwick, that's like, okay, okay, maybe you do understand. And by the way, even if you don't understand me that well, your partners who are all working that, that segment, I can work with them and they will understand me. One of the classic mistakes I see a lot of first-time or early-stage CEOs saying is, we're going to go to enterprise. They look back two quarters later, and it's like, wow, this isn't working very well, so we're going to stop. And it's like, no, this is, you're in that incubation zone. You need to invest if this is your key to growth. Do you see a lot of companies still kind of just dabbling and not understanding that product or that market is a different zone? That's what the transformation zone's about. Because what you're describing is how we destroy. You mentioned there were all these uh, Fortune 500 companies that don't exist. Zone to Win has 54 iconic tech companies listed on the eighth page of the book, none of which currently exist. And they were they crushed it the first time. And so you say, well, what in the world happened? And because obviously they were technologically competent, they were good management teams, but they would get into this second wave. Of course, it's a J-curve, right? Which means that things get worse before it gets better, right? And they get halfway into the J-curve and it would just be so awful and so painful that what they would do is they'd convince themselves they had the wrong product or they had the wrong leader or, or whatever. And the answer is, no, you don't. You're going through a J-curve. So the transformation zone says, first of all, don't think you can hide a J-curve because a lot of them were just trying to hide it. You got to call it out. You have to build a narrative for your investors because they're going to see it. And once you start it, you can't stop. You just can't. By the way, once you get through the J-curve, you're a hero. But until you get through the J-curve, you are the dumbest person on the planet. 
Yeah, you just hope you get to the other side of that J curve, right? Well, exactly. And, and by the way, which means now, if you're bored, if you have a kind of board that would pull the plug on you, then what you have to say is, okay, look, we can't do a transformation. We can't. So therefore, we have to find some way. Maybe we sell ourselves to another company. Maybe we can organically mo- modernize our business. Maybe we can do an acquisition. But we can't take our company through a J curve. You know, it's interesting, Jeff. I lived through that with GE. We were the world's largest provider of time sharing, which was multi-tenant applications on a mainframe accessible through a global private network. And they saw that the internet was going to kill their business, right? So they did the joint venture with Netscape. But about a year and a half into it, they're like, oh, we're on the bottom side of the J curve. And we're really concerned about our quarterly and annual net earnings. So they decided not to move forward and seeded one of the biggest, I think, opportunities they ever had on the technology side of their business. Yeah, it hurts. And by the way, just even more recently, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, Internet of Things, which company ought to run the Internet of Things? And, you know, and GE jumped into the middle of it and they had their issues. But still, you know, you're thinking, oh, man, you had the right brand, you had the right relationships. But it takes a transformational initiative. And transformation is so unpopular. It's, by the way, it's internally unpopular as well as externally unpopular. It's just unpopular. That's why when you say, I mean, Reed, I had a coffee with Reed once when he was working through his DVD to streaming transition at Netflix. And he, he said, you know, my company's at war with itself <laughs> because you know, the DVD guys are going, you're taking our money and you're giving it to our enemies. <laughs> but uh, yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> you know, just a, a couple of companies I'm going to ask you and say, hey, here's where they're at. Salesforce, what zone are they in? Well, first of all, Salesforce has nine businesses that are over a billion dollars. So I was teasing the other day. I said, you guys are a herd of unicorns. And actually they said, it turns out, by the way, the word for a herd of unicorns is a blessing of unicorns. So, so now they're teasing each other, but we're a blessing of unicorns. So if you've got a unicorn at scale, you're in the performance zone, but then you acquire the next thing or the, and the next disruptive thing. And so the, those things have to be managed in an incubation zone model. Now, not everything has to go through a transformation. If you can take an acquisition and kind of graft it onto your existing product lines, that's actually the best outcome for everybody because it's less disruptive. Your customers are seeing things going forward. Yes, there's a time when you spend more money than you should. You're, you know, you, you got overlay sales forces and you've got lots of expenses. But on the whole, people go, this is feeling very, very good and, and you're getting good growth. But then sometimes it's like, no, we're gonna we're gonna go into a whole new they just bought Slack. Is that that and it's like, okay, fellas, now how are we gonna do this? And and they've got a whole vision for Slack. It's very, very exciting. But it's new. And 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 I have to give Mark a lot of credit. Mark is one of those leaders who puts his kind of money where his mouth is. I mean, he just he just does it. Well, unfortunately, we're getting almost to the end of our podcast, but I want to do a major pivot. I want to follow your lead, Jeff, if that's okay. And that is you just recently published a new book, and it's not a technology marketing book. It's called The Infinite Staircase. And let me just give the audience a couple quotes before we ask you more about the catalyst for this book. Guy Kawasaki, famous chief evangelist from Apple, said, Jeffrey Moore has crossed a chasm from marketing to metaphysics. And Mark Benioff says, in this profound, remarkable work, you explore the meaning of human existence and you open our minds to a new paradigm for understanding our place in the universe and a set of strategies for living an ethical life. Pretty meaty and heady quotes, Jeff. So what was the catalyst to writing The Infinite Staircase? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I wrote about strategies for living in a hierarchical vision of the universe in my dissertation back when I was 28 years old. And basically, at that, I was using the Renaissance culture, which was, of course, a very, the great chain of being is what they call it. it starts with God, the angels and the people and down the animals or whatever. But, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, I've been fascinated by reading it in science. So I, I've read a bunch of stuff in astrophysics. The molecular biology of the cell is just amazing stuff. So I was reading that. And those books are all about how you get from a big bang to a bacterium and they kind of explain to you how you could get from a big bang to a bacterium and then darwinism which i was always interested in because it reminded me of marketing it reminded me of market competition so darwinism kind of takes you from bacteria to people i mean how'd you get you know, multi-celled animals and eventually you get to mammals and reptiles and whatever and then and then the last part of the book is about well once you get language now now how do you get from sort of grunting and saying give me more meat to atomic theory and i was trying to build a narrative which says okay how do you get from the Big Bang to Ray and Jeff talking on this podcast without any magical leaps. So that was a, that was an interesting problem. You remember that cartoon, which is Here's a Miracle? Professor says to the other guy, I think you should be more specific here. I was going to try to do that for the whole thing. And then the last thing I wanted to do was and kind of the motivation behind the whole thing is I'm concerned about our loss of confidence and ethical action in our culture right now. I think we've kind of lost our way. And so the, the fix was, well, you got to go back to religion. And I thought, no, I don't think people are going to go back to religion. A lot of people identify as spiritual, but not religious. So I wanted to say, okay, if this narrative about how you get from Big Bang to Ray and Jeff talking on the podcast is coherent, now, where does ethics come into the equation? And how, how do you validate and authorize ethics going forward? And that's what the last third of the book's about. Interesting. So the first two-thirds of the book kind of describes the way the world is, right? Yes. And how it influences the moral principles that kind of govern your behaviors. Is that correct? Yes, the last third is more about the ethics morality? Yeah, the, the last third is about, okay, well, if that's the world, how am I supposed to act? What's my strategy for living? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's still frameworks doing strategy. I'm crossing the chasm, zone to win in an infinite staircase. They're all about what's the situation you're dealing with? Can we frame that correctly? And then given that perception of the situation, what's the best course of action? And, and, and so this was just an attempt to say, okay, well, let's take that all the way back to all of human life. This is really intriguing to me because and I grew up in a fairly religious family and my kids all went to Catholic school. And my children have said, you know, it's not the theory of religion because for them, they're very analytical and kind of science-based. Like, it's hard to believe, but we love the values that we've been taught. And the values were more religious. But as you said, less and less of a percentage of our population have a religious belief and it's more of a spiritual orientation. So where are we going to get those uh, maybe guideposts for values and ethics in the future, Joe? Oh, that was exactly the purpose of the last third of the book. And so the argument I make is, I, I say, look, the values that we cherish, I trace back to being mammals. And the thing about being a mammal as opposed to a reptile is for the first year of your life, you are given unconditional love. You know how I know that? Because you'd be dead if you weren't, right? Babies cannot survive. So, so we start with love and it's just built in right at the beginning. So you watch little kids, they're three or four years old. They know how to be kind and they want to be kind. And then you watch them socialize and they build this value of fairness. You think, wow, the little kids care a ton about it. That's not fair. you got to be more fair. This isn't fair because that's their sort of 
That's their first moral code. And all of that's coming from a mammalian social group. You see, reptiles don't hang out with each other, but mammals do. And and mammals, by the way, have a nurturing leader who's typically a mother figure. And they have a tribal sort of disciplinary leader who's typically kind of a father figure. And like the family sort of a microcosm, that father figure is installing things like duty and honor and loyalty and respect and less thing. And the mother figure is doing more about compassion and empathy and unconditional love, et cetera. So all of that's there. And then you say, okay, but now how do you scale that? And when we've tried to scale it, we get into trouble. So like morality is really trying to scale, you know, our, our values. But and it works as long as you stay within a community of faith, that actually works. But if you once one community of faith tries to tell another community of faith, you're wrong and I'm right. And by the way, I'm going to prove it because I'm going to kill you. <laughs> that gets a little ugly. And then the other place we're working with it in, in a secular world is around justice. And, you know, we have legal justice and social justice. And, and we're, we're pretty good at legal justice in this country. We actually got very good rule of law. But social justice, is, is it's a real challenge. And so those are still, I ended up calling them works in progress. I said, look, we're just not there yet. We've only been doing it for a couple hundred years. So we shouldn't be perfect at it. Kindness we've had for, I don't know, 100,000 years, 200,000 years, I don't know, a long time. So we should be pretty good at being kind. And we should give ourselves a little patience about being good at justice. Well, I'm going to try to bring these two worlds together. And that is, we recently had a company rename itself to Meta because they want to be a major player in the metaverse. So one of my fears, and maybe it's my old guy orientation, is does the digital world, the metaverse, change the reality of the metaphysics and environment we live in? And is that going to change our ethos of ethics? Well, it sure as heck does. I mean, there's no question that the whole digital, and in particular, let's just take, I mean, the metaverse is maybe a little futuristic for me to deal with. Let's just take social media. The first 10 years of social media, this is like, this is so great. You know, we, we can talk to each other. We can see each other on Facebook. This Wikipedia thing, is that amazing? Google, it's just great. And then in the last 10 years, the dark political forces in particular, there are other forces as well, but the one that just aggravates me to no end is when politicians who knew better, whose parents raised them better than this, went to the dark side and they started using social media to create outrage and anger. Because if you have an angry base, they will be loyal to you and they will vote the way you want them to vote. And so what happened was it got out of control. And we're blaming Facebook and we can blame Twitter and we can blame this or we can blame ourselves. But the point is, we don't know how to handle it. There are 3 billion people on Facebook. I mean, it's like, I'm sorry, people. We don't have any governmental mechanisms to handle that. So the fact that this off this dark stuff is happening, yeah, it is. So I think we'll get there. I think we'll learn. We're human beings. We're adaptive. It's a new environment. It's Darwinism, right? Darwinism, it's another Darwinian condition. But I don't. I can't tell you where it's going to land. It's going to be an interesting journey. And thank you for writing a book that allows us to be a little self-reflective. So to our listening audience, right? Read Crossing the Chasm if you haven't to make sure you understand the technology lifecycle adoption curve. And if you want to make sure that your morals and ethics carry through that entire journey, the infinite staircase is a good one, Jeff. Hey, three quick questions for the audience to get you know on a personal basis a little bit better. Okay. Which CEO or company do you think is a must follow for everyone today? Well, I, I'm sort of in love with Salesforce. I, I spend a lot of time with them. And it's not just Mark. I, in fact, I just came back today from New York. I spent three days with the management team. And there's like 25 people in that group. Every time any one of them walks to a door, I think, oh, wow. And I think part of it is they just got really good 
values. They've got really good culture. They're really, they are very, very committed. So I don't know if I would say that from an investor point of view so much as just, and by the way, they led the way into the pandemic. They were the first companies to, to talk, model how to behave during the pandemic. And they did all that thing with work.com and contact tracing, whatever. Right now, they've just committed to lead the way out of the pandemic. So they're going to try to model how do we go forward from here. And I will, I, I will share Mark's message around stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. I mean, that resonates so well, I think, with this generation of early career tech professionals, too. Totally, totally agree. Second question, what piece of software, SaaS software, do you think every technology company should be using today, not Salesforce? The key to the SaaS model is land and expand and basically customer success. So the, the customer success software I happen to know is Gainsight because Nick Meta is a good friend and I've, I've worked with the team. But customer success, that notion and trying to get ahead of the customer's intentions. So that it's not just can they use the software and how, what are my monthly active users or blah, blah, blah. It's also about what are they really trying to do and how can we get to the next, help them get to their next stage? So I would say customer success software. That's a great piece of advice. In fact, I'm working with Nick right now because they're making a major investment in another segment, which is product experience. Because with retention being so critical in net dollar retention, which is retention plus growth, he's expanding the footprint of their product. So he's in a new zone. Well, yeah. And and, and this is getting into this area of product-led growth, which is, a, you know, for a long time, we said, well, you have to have salespeople to sell product in the enterprise. And I would say to land Yes. For most people, yes. Particularly if you're going to land in a big way. But expand, no. Expand should be product. The product needs to evangelize itself. And people in the consumer world get that in spades because if you don't have a viral product in the consumer world, you don't have a company. But in the enterprise, you didn't have to be viral. And now I think what people are realizing, well, you might not have to be, but you want to be. And by the way, we're also, as you look ahead, you're going, and by the way, all the competition is getting there. And so pretty soon you're going to have to, or you're going to be left behind. Now that's a good one. Customer success and gain sight. Last question. You know, we're both on the other side of our career trajectory, right? I know I've only got 30 or 40 years left, <laughs> but if you were talking to an early career professional and she was just graduating from undergrad, it's like, you know, I want to be the next great B2B SaaS founder and CEO. What advice would you give them right now in the early stages of their career? Well, I would say, look, before you go out and start your own company, which is obviously what you're going to do and what you should do, that's not where you should start. I would ask that they go to a great SaaS company and get a customer-facing role. So that may be user experience design. It may be business development, BDR, kind of business development rep. It might be a sales rep. It might be a professional services, whatever it is. Because if you're already an engineer, you're, you've got a career path. And by the way, if you do data science, you've got a very lucrative career path. But I'm doing the liberal arts route, which is, okay, start with the customer. And the reason why that, two reasons. One is when you're interacting with a customer, you have to be able to represent your customer, your company's products or the, the customer. They're counting on you. But more importantly, you see your company's products at the coal face, right where they meet the customer situation. It's never a, a perfect fit, ever. So there's always, you, you see the opportunity of how to get better, both from the point of view of what can we do to soften the landing with the product we have, but more importantly, what can we do to invest going forward to make it better and better and better? You know what's interesting? It's, it's great feedback, and I'm going to supplement it and see what you think. Even if you're a great engineer or data scientist, if you want to lead your own company, found and lead it, I think doing a rotation in whether it's 
pre-sales engineering or some type of market facing is critical to be an effective CEO as you scale the company. Oh, totally. In fact, in, in venture, we often invest in a two-headed beast. So there's often a technical leader and a kind of a market leader, you know, company leader, market leader. And, and usually the market leader, by the way, becomes the CEO. Uh, not always. And by the way, there are technical leaders who, there, there's magical people that can do both. It's an and, not an or for them. For most of us, it's an or, it's not an and. And so that's amazing. But I think, so I think one of the questions I might ask that woman, uh, you know, this new person coming into business for the first time to do some reflection around is, first of all, am I an and? Because if you are, go, go, do both sides. If I'm not, then can I pair myself with an analyst? But like when you're talking about pairing a visionary and a pragmatist, you know, pairing a, a technology expert with a market leader. Jeff, this has been just a fascinating conversation for me. And before we sign off for the day, any last things you'd like to share with our listening audience? Well, I just think you're terrific. I mean, I think you're, first of all, I think you are a great interviewer and I think you represent your audience really, really well. I think you and I are sitting at a point in our careers where we, we see so much opportunity in the new market. For the first time, you could build on the past so much more easily. In the past, it was very hard to transition from mainframes to mini computers and mini computers to PCs and PCs to the internet. But in this new world where we have APIs and cloud computing and microservices, there's so much opportunity to use the work of others to go to the next level. And so I think it, I think it's just going to be a huge impact of technology over the next several decades. So I think it's going to be a wonderful time to be in the industry. Yeah. And I want to thank you for your latest book, because I think, I know I did this early in my career. I lost myself for the focus on the career and all the glory that goes with a, you know, a high growth career or being an entrepreneur and having a chance to reflect on the ethics and morals that you live your life by. The earlier you start, the better you're going to be. Yeah, I agree with that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeff. And to our listening audience, it means the world to us that you're listening to our guests and our content. And if you like us, we'd love for you to go ahead and give us a thumbs up, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, and give us a recommendation so we can make this show even better. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Jeff. Take care, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.